The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought, it, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honoured himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. 
I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Before we consider God's word together, let's pray. Let's ask for his mercy and his help. Father, we are thankful for the precious gift of your word. And we accept it as the very word of God. It is holy. It is without error. It is inspired by your spirit. And we pray now that that same spirit would write this word upon our hearts. And Father, we fear that too often we're like Uzzah or Michal. And so we pray that you would tune our hearts today to receive your grace and to sing your praise. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the focus of this text is on the Ark of the Covenant. And the word ark is repeated 15 times as you read through this chapter. That's the focus, the ark of God, the ark of the covenant. And as you know, last year we went through 1 Samuel. And it just so happens that if you were with us last year, it was exactly a year ago that we were considering the ark of God, the ark of the covenant. Because 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 6 deal with the Ark of the Covenant. And on the first two Sundays of February 2019, that's where we were. And in God's providence, here we are exactly one year later, and we are again turning our attention to the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. Now, for us, it's been a year, but for the people of Israel, it had been 70 years since the Ark of God was brought out into public, since the Ark of God had been uh, the center of Israel's worship. And the occasion was David's bringing up the ark to Jerusalem. He had conquered Jerusalem. He had established his kingdom there. There was a united Israel. And David's first concern then, having done that, was to bring up the ark of God to Israel, to restore right worship and Israel. And it was a day of great national celebration. There's singing. There's rejoicing. Everything's going well. 30,000 people, the troops are gathered there. The people of Israel are gathered there, rejoicing, singing, festivity, until Uzzah died. And then David was angry, and he was scared, and he called the whole thing off. But the ark went back into storage, went into the house of Obed-Edom. He was blessed. David heard of the blessing, and he said, let's bring the ark up again. But this time it was different. This time he brought the ark up in a spirit of repentance, and we'll see that, And then with great joy, and he danced with all his might before the Lord. But Michal, who was watching this whole celebration at a distance, despised David in her heart. And so we see here three main characters, Uzzah and David and Michal. Uzzah died in the presence of the Lord. David danced in the presence of the Lord. Michal despised David in the presence of the Lord. And that's what we have to consider this morning. The death of Uzzah, and that's in verses 1 to 11. David's dancing with all his might before the Lord 
in verses 12 to 13, and then Michal despising David in her heart, verses 20 to 23. And as we consider this text, what we will learn and what we will be called to heed is the exhortation that we hear at the end of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, verses 11 to 12, we read this. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. And Uzzah reminds us that we are to serve the Lord with fear. David reminds us that we are to rejoice with trembling. And Michal reminds us that we are to kiss the Son. We're not to despise the Son. So first, Uzzah. Now, the occasion for Uzzah's death was that he touched the Ark of the Covenant. He touched the Ark. And the Ark, as I said, is central to the account that we have to consider today. And it's, it'll be helpful just to remember the significance of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. Just remember what that was. So we have a description of it in a number of places in the Old Testament in the, in the Law of Moses. But in Exodus 25, we can read about it a description of the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't big. It was about three and a half feet long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet high. And above the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat, and then there was these two cherubim that, were, uh, that, that overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm guessing many of us have seen this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, so we kind of have an image of that. Um, that's, that's about as helpful uh, as that movie gets concerning, you know, the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. But we get a picture of it. So you know what it looks like. And it was placed behind the veil in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. That's the inner sanctuary in the tabernacle. And the descriptions that we have of it in Exodus 25 tell us its significance. So it tells us, first of all, that... It signified God's presence, and we see that even in our text. God, the Lord of hosts, is enthroned upon the cherubim. He's present there. It's his throne. It signifies his presence. It also signified his provision, the fact that he provides for his people. God is not only present with his people, he cares for them. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was placed a jar with manna, and that was a reminder to the people of Israel that God cares for them. He provides for them. And then... It signified his revelation. We're told in Exodus that Moses went before the ark and God spoke to him there. And God commanded him there. So not only his revelation that he speaks, but he rules. And in the Ark of the Covenant were placed the Ten Commandments. A reminder that God is sovereign over history. He commands. He rules. But also it signified his mercy and his salvation. Because the cover of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy seat. And that is amazing that God reigns, he rules from the mercy seat. That's his throne. It's the throne of mercy. And once a year, and only once a year, could one person enter the Holy of Holies, stand before the Ark of the Covenant, and he would, he would sprinkle the shed blood of a sacrifice on the Ark. And that signified the atonement of Israel's sins, the fact that the, that God's wrath had been satisfied by the shed blood of an animal. And it was on the Day of Atonement, which was a day of national repentance. Now, we need to keep all of that in mind, the significance of the ark, 
the meaning of the ark, God's presence, God's rule, God's provision, God's salvation and mercy, and the posture of God's people before it, one of repentance. Now, we also need to remember what happened the last time the ark was brought out before Israel. And so we just need to, to remi- remind ourselves what happened back in 1 Samuel, chapters 4 to 6. So you'll remember that Hophni and Phinehas, these are two wicked priests. The Israelites were losing a battle against the Philistines. And the people didn't know what to do. And they thought, let's go get the ark. We'll bring it out onto the battlefield. We're sure to get the victory if we do that. Surely we'll have the victory. So Hophni and Phinehas bring the ark out onto the battlefield. And the the Israelites are defeated. 30,000 men of Israel die. The ark was captured by the Philistines. They took it back and they put it in their temple the temple of Dagon. And then what happened is the idol, the great idol of Dagon, fell down before the ark. And so the Philistines came back in and they propped it back up. And then they came in the next day and they found it had fallen down again before the ark. And this time its head was knocked off and its hands were knocked off. It's symbolic of the the emptiness and the deadness of their God. Well, the Philistines were concerned at this point. Not only that, God had sent tumors, a plague of tumors upon the people. And they recognized, the the leaders of the Philistines recognized that God's hand was heavy upon them, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so they convened together, what should we do? We need to send the ark back. And they did that. Now, how did they do that? They put it on a cart and they had two cows lead it back to Judah. And the cows took the ark back to a priestly city. And the priests saw the ark coming towards them on a cart, and they rejoiced. They were thankful at the return of the ark. They took those cows, and they offered them as a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice. Oh, that sounds very religious. Okay, good thing to do. But that violated God's law, because God requires that a male cow, and only a male cow, be offered as a sacrifice. They offered female cows. And then we're told that the priests touched the ark and they looked inside. And again, God's law is very clear. Numbers chapter 4. Don't touch the ark. Don't look at the ark. And then there's a warning. If you do, you will surely die. And what happened? Seventy priests died that day. And the people were terrified and they sent the ark off into storage into Judah, uh, into Baal Judah. And that's where David has gone to get the ark. Now, this is all in the background. This is all in the, in the recent history and experience of the people of Israel. So we would have thought, we would have hoped that David and Uzzah would have remembered what happened and would have been careful to obey God's command concerning the ark of the covenant. But they weren't. They weren't. David just wants to throw a celebration. Nothing wrong with that, with rejoicing. But there's no no attitude or spirit of repentance. There are no burnt offerings. And Uzzah puts the ark on a cart. Now again, in Numbers chapter 4, it's very clear that whenever the ark is transported... It needs to be carried by the priests. And in fact, on either side of the ark were three rings, and a pole was inserted in those rings, and the priests would pick up the ark on their shoulders, and they would walk with it. The ark of God was to be carried by priests. It wasn't to be put on a cart and pulled by oxen. 
And again, the warning is, if you don't follow these commandments concerning the ark, you will surely die. It's there. Uzzah should have known better. David should have known better. Now, why would Uzzah want to put the ark on a cart? Why did he do that? And we're not told. We don't, we don't know his motivations. We do know that he was the one who was taking care of the ark. He and his family all those years. He was used to it. It was familiar to him. He, 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 had, he had cared for the ark for a long time. And he may have seen and, and remembered that the Philistines had put the ark on a cart and it was drawn by oxen, and he may have seen that and thought, hey, that's, that's pretty efficient. You know, that's, that's a good way to do it. We don't need six people to come and carry it. We just need, you know, two priests. It's just him and his brother. He can lead the oxen. I'll walk beside. And he thought, there's a little bit of, of Philistine technology. And the Israelites and the Philistines had a relationship where the Philistines had better technology. That was, that was the, the case. And so Uzzah may have thought, hey, that's, that's an improvement upon God's instructions. This is a better way to do it. It's more efficient. It's better managed this way. There also may have been a religious motivation. So this way, the ark is at a, it's out of harm's way. It's at a safer distance. Let's keep God's presence at a safe distance from people. You know, having six priests right there carrying it, that could be dangerous. Put it on a cart, hey, we're, we're okay, we'll be okay. We'll keep God at a safe distance. Now, the spirit of this, though, even if it's motivated by a certain uh, religious concern, the spirit of it is one where Uzzah thought he could better care for the ark than God had instructed his people to care for the ark. And he wanted to care for the ark, and he wanted to worship God on his own terms, not on God's terms. That's a warning to us. We often want to worship God on our terms, right? What's convenient for us, what works for us. But what Uzzah was doing when he did that is he was treating God like the Philistines treated God. He was treating God like a Philistine idol. That's the implication for us when we seek to worship God on our own terms. Now, as I was thinking of this, I was thinking of analogies in the history of Christianity and the history of the church. And I think we see something similar in the way that the Mass has been celebrated through most of the history of the Roman Catholic Church. So, if you don't know how that, how that happened, the congregation, the people, they would, they would be sitting where you are, but the priest would be far removed, you know, up here, but even more so, kind of back there. And the priest would have his back turned to the congregation, and he would be muttering various prayers in Latin. The people wouldn't be able to understand that. And then when they went to serve the Lord's Supper, when they went to celebrate the Mass, they wouldn't give the cup of wine to the people. And the concern was, what if somebody takes the cup and they spill the blood of Christ, and we, we don't want that to happen. And then the people would kneel down and they would open their mouth and the priest would take the bread and he would put it in their mouth. We don't want to give it to the people. Again, they, you know, are we going to put the body of Christ in people's hands? What if they drop it on the ground? And the concern here is, all right, worship needs to be well-managed. We need to keep people at a safe distance. That's what Uzzah was concerned about. But that kind of worship is dead. 
and Uzzah was dead. And I would say even before he dropped dead on the threshing floor of Nacon, he was dead. He was dead before his God. In love, God comes down to us and he's willing to have his ark carried by priests. And in love, God comes down to us and he's pleased to have this bread and this wine handled by you for you to take the cup, for you to take the bread, to receive it, to eat it. He's not concerned about that. He doesn't want to be kept at a safe distance. He doesn't need to be well-managed, well-cared for. Well, that's the Roman Catholic Church. And we may think, well, evangelicals, you know, we've had the Protestant Reformation. And by the way, I am thankful for Luther and others' debates and battles to reform not just theology, but the worship of the church. You know, I'm thankful that we come forward and receive the cup and the bread every Sunday. But let's not think that as evangelicals somehow, oh, we've got it figured out. Because I think we are guilty of the same thing when it comes to our singing in church. So the expectation, and this is the practice in many churches, is that you've got the professionals up front, and they're performing the music for us. And it's just like the priest in the Middle Ages who's performing the Mass. And we come and we watch the performance. And that's kind of like putting God on the ox cart. You know, we'll stand back. We'll let other people do it. Now remember what Psalm 22 verse 3 says. God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. So in Israel, God was carried by the priests, the Ark of the Covenant, carried by the priests. But he was also enthroned upon the praises of his people, which means when we come together on a Sunday morning and we sing God's praises, we are carrying the Lord. We are lifting him up. He's enthroned upon our praises by our singing. And I fear that we have the spirit of Uzzah when we just sort of show up and Watch other people sing. So we need to take a moment and just consider what what is going on in your heart that doesn't draw you out to sing God's praises. And yes, there may be, oh, I'm distracted by this and the slides were wrong and it doesn't sound good or whatever. Okay, yeah. But let's lift up our voice because Christ is enthroned upon our praises. Let's sing. Let's sing on Sundays when we come together. Now, just generally, I think we need to watch the spirit of Uzzah in our lives. I mentioned already the fact that, you know, there's a temptation for us to want to worship God on our own terms. You know, we we want to manage things. We want to be in control of things. And we need to recognize that As Canadians, our Canadian society, our Canadian uh, culture, our Canadian way of life, it influences us, it shapes us. And we live in a society that is both, on the one hand, we've got state socialism, so the government does a lot for us, and we expect that. 
As Canadians, we expect that. I mean, that's just our default. The government will do it for us. They do everything for us. We expect that. On the other hand, we live in a consumerist capitalist society where the market is serving us all the time. Whatever the state doesn't provide for me, well, I can buy that. I can pay for it. So one way or the other, either the state or the market is serving us all the time. We are entitled consumers as Canadians. And so that's our default. We're used to being served. We're used to having things done for us. And so like Uzzah, if there's the option of having the cart or having the ark put on a cart, yeah, let's do that. Right? That's better. We don't need to carry it. So we just need to be aware of the fact that as Canadians, how that affects us. And here's a test, and I'll just, this is a, you know, a confession from the pulpit. I confess that if I go through the McDonald's or the Tim Hortons drive-thru, and I open up my bag on the way, you know, I'm dri- driving away, and they've got the order wrong, you know, I'm, what an injustice. I'm just, come on. <laughs> Sat in the drive-thru for 10 minutes, and I clarified it twice with the, you know, the order, and this happened recently. <laughs> I wanted a double cheeseburger. For Sam, and they gave us a double quarter pounder with cheese, which, you know, I said to Sam, that's, that's better. <laughs> but I was kind of annoyed because I tried to make it clear, you know, what we had ordered. But I just says something about how, how we are as Canadians. We're very entitled. We think everything is going to be served. We're being served all the time. And then we come into church, and we're, this is a worship service. We don't come here to be served, right? We come here to, to serve. And just in terms of our, our life generally, we need to recognize that, that we are called into the service of Christ. We're called to serve, not to be served. So just recognize as Canadians, we have our default is Uzzah, to be like Uzzah. Now, when Uzzah came to the threshing floor of Nacon, he was struck dead. Now, as we've been reading through this, as soon as we heard new cart. We should have been very concerned about what was about to happen. And I know when the first time you hear this account, you think, wow, that's a little harsh. You know, it was going to fall over. He was just steadying the ark. Why did he die? But as soon as we, as soon as we read new cart, we should have been very concerned. Because the last time the ark was mishandled, 30,000 men of Israel died on the battlefield. Notice how many men that David's invited to this celebration, 30,000 again. We should be worried that 30,000 men are going to die again because the ark's being mishandled. And then 70 priests died. So actually, what is surprising about this count is only one person died. Only Uzzah died. And it was on the threshing floor. And the, th- the threshing floor in Scripture, it's an image. It's a, a symbol of God's judgment. The threshing, and that God judges Uzzah there. Now David responds with anger. He's angry at this. He's angry at the Lord. How could the Lord be angry? Look at what I was doing. This was a great celebration. Everybody's singing and rejoicing. This is a party for the Lord. The kingdom's been established. We're all united. All of the people are here. They're singing and dancing and rejoicing. For you, God, we were doing that for you. What have you done? You've ruined it. He's angry. 
And he's scared. Just as the people in that town of Judah were scared when the 70 priests died. And so he sends the cart away, or the, the, the ark away again. Puts it into storage. And the place where Uzzah died from that day forward was called Perez Uzzah. Perez Uzzah. Because the Lord broke out against. That's what Perez means, to break out against. The Lord's anger was kindled, and he broke out against Uzzah. And Uzzah was struck dead by the Lord. Perez Uzzah. Now, we read an account like this, and we wonder, we ask the question, why did Uzzah die? But really the question should be when we read an account like this is, how is it that we stand before the Lord and live? And the reason is because our Lord Jesus bore God's wrath in our place. That's why. And so I want you to remember this. Yes, that place just outside of Jerusalem where Uzzah was struck dead, that, that's called Perez Uzzah. But let's remember that just as the priests put the Ark of God on a wooden cart outside of Jerusalem, so the priests later would hand over the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and put him on a wooden cross outside Jerusalem. And the Lord broke out against him on that cross. And that place is called Perez Jesus. And the reason that we can stand before the Lord is because he stood in our place and he satisfied God's wrath. God's anger was kindled towards him because he bore our sin in our place. And so we're reminded every, every Sunday, even as we come to the Lord's table, we remember his body given up for us. We remember his blood shed for us. We remember Calvary, Perez Jesus, where the wrath of God broke out against him in our place. And so, and you can read through the, the letter of Hebrews, one of the main themes of that letter is, now we can come into the presence of God because of his shed blood in our place. I love those lines in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that song that we sing. He to save my soul from danger. Danger from what? Danger from the wrath of God. He to save my soul from danger interposed his precious blood. And so how can we stand in the presence of God and live? Because of the shed blood of Christ in our place. Well, that was Uzzah. How about David? Yes, he was angry, and he called the whole thing off. But then later the report came to him. The house of Obed-Edom has been blessed. And he heard that blessing flowing from the ark. And so we pick this up in verse 12. You can look at it with me. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So yes, there's rejoicing again. There's celebration again. But verse 13 is key. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. Now notice that. When those who bore the ark of the Lord, David gets it now. He's obeying the word of God. There's rejoicing. Before there was rejoicing with transgression. 
Well, that's deadly. Now there's rejoicing with obedience. Those who bore the ark. And when they'd gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now these are sin offerings, but notice he sacrificed an ox. The ox that had been pulling God along now is sacrificed. This is a public act of repentance. And that's our posture before the ark. That's our posture before our Lord, before this table. It's one of repentance. So yes, there's rejoicing, but there's rejoicing because there is obedience and there's repentance. But notice how that joy then is expressed. Verse 14. Kids, if you have your little, uh, your little sheet that you're filling out, this is the key verse. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. I love that sentence. David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. Obedience and repentance leads to joy, and that joy is expressed through David's dancing. And he danced with all his might. And the image that we get there is David leaping and David twirling. You know, he's pirouetting. He's jumping and spinning and leaping and dancing with all his might. And I think at that moment, David was the most free he'd ever been. You know, pure freedom in the presence of God. He was the most himself that he'd ever been. And yes, he was a king. But notice what he does. He takes off the crown. He takes off all of his military and royal armor. You know, a humble linen ephod. Because yes, he's the king, but before the Lord, he is a worshiper. And he worships with all his might. And he leaps and he dances. He is fully alive. He's fully himself. And yes, there's all kinds of people around. But he is, he's doing this for an audience of one. He's doing this for his Lord. He's doing this for his God. And quite frankly, he doesn't care. right? He's, he's not, whatever, whatever people may think about this. And notice there are people thinking about this. Because meanwhile, Michaela is looking at a distance through her window. And she's despising him. Now, when David arrives in Jerusalem, he offers a burnt offering and a fellowship offering. That's significant. The burnt offering was an offering which was wholly burnt up before the Lord, and we're told in Leviticus 1 that it was a pleasing aroma, a soothing fragrance before the Lord. And that language of of pleasing, of soothing, of aroma, of fragrance, that carries the idea of propitiation. That means the wrath of God is being satisfied. And so he offers these burnt offerings as a recognition. We are a sinful people in your presence, but by means of this offering, your wrath is satisfied. So we can be in your presence. And we know that all of those offerings were pointing to Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice to propitiate the wrath of God. And then he offers fellowship offerings, and these were meals. It wasn't a whole burnt offering. The the, The food was cooked, and it was shared, and it was eaten. And it signified the fact that because of God's mercy and love and the forgiveness of our sins, we can now dwell in his presence and we dwell together in his presence and we eat at table with him and with one another. Now all of this is God's gracious provision and blessing for his people and David receives it. And then notice what he does. Then he blessed the people. He received the blessing, the mercy, the grace, the love of God and then he blessed the people, and it had a concrete expression. Cakes of bread. 
raisin cakes. These things were distributed, given to the people. And here this reminds us that our worship is not just a time where we we lay down our lives and we serve our Lord. It's a time where we also receive his blessing, we receive his mercy, his grace. My hope is that every Sunday is, is a day like that day for David, you know, a day of leaping and dancing, of worshiping with all our might, of receiving the fullness of God's blessing, his mercy, his love. And then David goes out and blesses others, and so do we. And we're not just containers, receptacles of God's blessing and love. We are we're conduits of that. It flows through us. It overflows. And we go out there in the world, and I recognize that this is a pretty unique time on a Sunday morning when we're together. And the rest of our lives is nothing like this. And it's very easy for this time to become detached from the rest of our lives. We live in a world that's very hard. It's difficult. It's sinful. It's broken. But David, he, he's filled with the love and blessing of God, and he blesses, he blesses others. And the love of God flows through him to others. And recently I was reading uh, one of the Puritan writers, Thomas Watson. I love what he says about the love of God. I'm going to quote him. He says this, He who loves God labors to render him lovely to others. He not only admires God, but speaks in his praises that he may allure and draw others to be in love with him also. True love of God cannot be silent. It will be eloquent in setting forth his renown. There is no better sign of loving God than to make him appear lovely and to draw proselytes to him. And so it is for David. He loves God with all his might, and he can't help but sharing that love with others. And it's a reminder to us that as we worship God with all our might, we will then go out and witness with all our might. The two things are connected, worship and evangelism. We have a hard time sharing the gospel with people. We have a hard time sharing the good news, the love, the grace of Christ with others. And one of the reasons for that is because we have a hard time singing and worshiping on a Sunday morning. The two go together. David danced with all his might and he blessed others with all his might. After that, very, you know, this, this was a, there probably wasn't a greater high for David, right? That day. He comes back just, you know, bathing in the love and the joy of that celebration. And he comes home to bless his own family. That's a wonderful picture. He went home to bless his household. I love that. It's a reminder to me. You know, this is great. I can get up here and say nice things to you about God's word, and I love that, but I need to go home and bless my family. David does that. But before he even gets in the door, Mikhail comes out. Now, she's not going to come out to celebrate and rejoice and sing and dance, but she'll come out to confront David, to rebuke David. Now, this is a reminder of the world we live in. Again, yes, this is, a, this is a unique time for us. We come together, we worship together. But we all have to go back out, you know, back to our homes, back to our places of work. And our experience is just like David's. So this is typical, what David experiences. And Mikhail, because of the, the, the bitterness and resentment in her heart, she comes out and she rebukes him, but she rebukes him with sarcasm. 
Now, let's be careful about sarcasm. Let's recognize where that's, you know, when we're being sarcastic, let's, let's recognize what's going on in our heart. Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today. But then she goes on to say, you were a fool, David. You made a fool of yourself today, David. You were like a drunk in the street. You're the king, David. Act with dignity. Act with decorum. Oh, how you honored yourself today. Now David responds and he says, Yes, your father is no longer king. Yes, I'm the king now. But that was before the Lord today. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will dance before the Lord. I will leap and twirl and pirouette before the Lord. And David, yes, he was king. But he knew that he was a humble servant of God. He was a worshiper of God. Now, it's, it's easy, I think, for us to be hard on, on Michal. And we think, oh, look at, you know, look at her despising David, and doesn't she get what's going on? We can be hard on Michal. I think we need to recognize where she was coming from, her experience. Her, her life was hard. When she was young, she loved David. And this was, you know, this was a royal romance. You know, this was a fairy tale. She loved David, and she was married to David. She was his first wife. But then her father drove David out of her life, and then her father married her to another man. It's tragic what happened to her. But then she made a life with this new husband. And I think what we get from 2 Samuel chapter 3, when she's torn apart from that second husband and reunited to David, the picture that we get there is she was very happy with her second husband. And she's torn away and she's reunited with David, but not just with David, David and his many wives. And I think we get why she thinks David's just trying to impress the ladies. I think we can appreciate that, where she's coming from. So let's recognize that she's had, she's had it tough. It's been hard for her. Even so, there was a resentment and a bitterness which had, had taken hold of her heart and it blinded her from the joy and the life of that celebration that day. She couldn't see it. And it robbed her of the joy and the blessing of, of God. And it is a warning to us. And I, I know that there are some of you here today who have you've had a hard life. You've suffered. You have reason to be bitter. I know. You have reason to be resentful. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. You've been betrayed. But don't let that rob you from the life and the love and the, and the joy that our Lord promises you. And there's an opportunity today, even as you come to the Lord's Supper, to, to repent of that, to renounce it, the bitterness, the resentment. And know this, that your Lord Jesus has borne your grief. He's carried your sorrows. He knows what you've been through. 
And remember what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples. And he says it to you today. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And let's remember that the Lord Jesus, who who says to us, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And I say these things that you may receive my joy, that your joy may be full. Well, Michal couldn't hear that. She couldn't receive that. And we're reminded that that Jesus is, yes, he's a rock and a refuge to some, but he's a stone of offense to others. And yes, he's the aroma of life to some, but he's the aroma of death to others. He was the aroma of death to Uzzah. He was a stone of offense to Michal. And Uzzah died and Michal was barren. But for David, he was a rock. He was a refuge. He was the aroma of life. And David danced with all his might. He knew that love. He knew that joy. And this morning we come again to this table. And this table reminds us that the shed blood of of Christ has propitiated the wrath of God so that we can come into his very presence. We can receive his mercy and his grace. He gave himself up for us. And this is a meal of fellowship a meal where we we know the love and the joy of our Lord. And so like David on that day, yes, we come in obedience, we come in faith, we come in repentance. But we also come with joy, we come with thanksgiving. So let's come to the Lord's table now, knowing that here we, we hear his voice again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And he says this to us that we may receive his joy and that our joy may be full. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.